Hi, I'm Adam Cooper, bringing you Season 5 of The Mediator Studio. We recorded most of the seven episodes in June 2023, before the Gaza war began. While some episodes reflect events predating the war, we're sure that insights are as relevant as ever about seeking peace in the region. Enjoy the new season, and thank you for joining us. Getting the agreement that was signed in Geneva took me seven weeks of shuttling between the two sides because they were still not talking to each other. I insisted, we want you to come to sign this jointly and solemnly. And in one of these grand meeting rooms in the Palais des Nations, uh, where the frescoes on the ceiling had been painted by Josep Luis Sert, that we had them. There, the parties understood that they really were bound by what they had agreed to. Welcome to The Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. My guest today is Alvaro de Soto, who spent over 50 years of his life in diplomacy and conflict resolution across the world. On behalf of the UN, he played a significant role in securing the deal which ended the civil war in El Salvador and helped draft the plan that could have led to a united Cyprus. And his time as the UN Middle East representative saw the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza in 2005 and the election in 2006 of Hamas. Alvaro de Soto, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Delighted to have been invited and very much looking forward to participating. Let's start with El Salvador. I want to take you back to Perez de Cuellar's first term as UN Secretary General in the early 1980s. Conflict raged across Central America, which must have been tough for the first South American SG, particularly as the Americans tried to keep the UN out of the region. And as for El Salvador, interestingly, I understand Perez de Cuellar didn't want to get involved at first. And I understand that you had to go to Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, where he was getting heart surgery to convince him. Tell me about that day. Well, it's not that he was opposed, but he wanted to make sure that the conditions were right. And he didn't want to get involved in the early years because someone else was involved and he didn't want to compete. But a device for an entry point occurred to me one fine morning. What I did is go to Mount Sinai, where he was recovering from heart surgery, and persuaded him to allow me to go ahead with it. And the idea was simply to involve the OAS Secretary General, Organization of American States, in a very gentle signal to the members of the Contadora group and the Central Americans, just to remind them that there were certain things that the UN and perhaps the Organization of American States could do. And at that point, he agreed. So I understand you had to start uh, very discreetly and meet quietly with government officials from El Salvador and members of the FMLN armed group. Tell me how you went about doing that work quietly. Meeting with the government was not a problem because, of course, they are a member of state of the UN and I was friendly with the ambassador and his deputy. 
With the FMLN, it was a little bit more tricky because we would meet them on the margins of non-aligned movement meetings. But there was an earlier meeting in Cuba on an official visit by the Secretary General where Fidel Castro asked the Secretary General whether he would be prepared to meet with them. And the Secretary General said yes, and he greeted them, and then he left my deputy and I with them. And that was my first meeting with them. And that turning point in the war came when the government and the FMLN rebels, as a result of the FMLN offensive in November 1989, concluded separately that they couldn't achieve their objectives by military means, and then each approached the UN Secretary General to ask for his assistance in late 1989. Tell me about how you felt when you were first formally appointed, and and were you optimistic at that time? We realised that something was happening when the two sides came to us. I had already participated as an observer in at least one meeting, not long after the inauguration of a new president in, in El Salvador. It was organized by the church, essentially, and this was in Costa Rica. We had been invited to participate in this as observers, but I observed that this wasn't going to lead anywhere. They were making a number of mistakes, tape recorders at the table, which dampens the possibility of any sort of informal exploration of ways out, constant briefing of the press, which was in the lobby of the place where the meetings were taking place. And so from the start, I had a clear idea that we needed to lay down ground rules. And did you feel that because they had both requested the UN's help, that that some sort of um, stalemate had been reached in the conflict where they thought now a sort of political settlement is is the best way forward? Absolutely, yes. I am totally convinced of that. The FMLN realized days into the offensive where they had swarmed in to the main cities in the country and linked up with their urban guerrillas, which were essentially sleeper cells, and realized when they tried to distribute weapons to the people so that they would rise up in a popular insurrection, that the people were afraid and they didn't want to take those weapons. And so they realized that they were not going to win this in the sense of toppling the government. At the same time, the armed forces but certainly the civilian leadership and the elites in El Salvador realized that they could not defeat the guerrillas. And a key factor in all of this was when, in the wee hours of the 16th of November 1989, the armed forces stealthily penetrated the campus of the Central American University And they summarily executed the rector of the university, a prestigious, eminent Jesuit intellectual, and five other Jesuit priests who were professors at the university. And they just killed them and tried to claim that it was a guerrilla operation. Nobody believed them. And that led, I think, the elites in El Salvador and probably the president himself to conclude 
that with this army and with this particular hard disk in its brain, they could not defeat the guerrillas. And so each, at his own pace, within a matter of weeks, moved toward the UN. And as a mediator, how did you take advantage of that moment and that terrible killing? That was particularly difficult because the two sides were daggers drawn and the FMLN made very clear that they were convinced that the government had only accepted to negotiate because they were being pressed by the elites who were facing a number of obstacles in their businesses to negotiate and look for a pragmatic way out. But since they were convinced of this, they did not want to accept any reduction in the conflict. So if there were to be negotiations, these were going to be wartime negotiations. And for the government, this was a bit difficult to swallow, but they never objected to this. But the president very much insisted on face-to-face meetings, and the face-to-face meetings were highly unproductive. They essentially harangued each other. Yeah. Tell me about how you reacted to that as a mediator and what your strategy was. Well, getting from the realization that there was a sort of a, a mutually hurting stalemate in the war to actually working things out pragmatically while they were still fighting proved very difficult and there was little headway being made. One of the first things that was agreed was an agenda for the negotiations that was to include an array of issues. Everything, essentially, the entire national problématique, the armed forces, human rights, the electoral system, the judiciary, and the ceasefire was left to the end only. And that sort of set out sort of an asymmetry, which consisted of the government having essentially one objective, which was to end the war and to have the FMLN military apparatus dismantled. And the FMLN, of course, could then become a political force if that's what they so wanted. But the FMLN had set out a number of profound and far-reaching reforms, including some amendments to the Constitution, which was very difficult to do, as the condition for the FMLN to give up the only thing that the government wanted. So the FMLN was not going to give anything up until they got those objectives. And this was difficult for the government to swallow because as talks progressed and sometimes regressed, because there were lots of, let's say, hills and and valleys in this uh, negotiations and bumps on the road, the government found itself making concessions and they didn't see the FMLN making any concessions because they only had one concession to make and that was at the end of the road. I want to ask you about the Geneva Agreement, signed on April 4th, 1990. Uh, It was notable that you insisted the ceasefire was signed in a 
solemn ceremony at the UN headquarters at the Palais des Nations in Geneva. Tell me about that day. Getting the agreement that was signed in Geneva took me seven weeks of shuttling between the two sides because they were still not talking to each other. We had actually reached the agreement a few days before, but then I insisted, we want you to come to sign this jointly and solemnly in order to make sure that your commitment is very public. And so I was able to intercept the Secretary General between two stages on a trip in Europe and in one of these grand meeting rooms in the Palais des Nations, uh, where the frescoes on the ceiling had been painted by Josep Luis Sert, that we had them when the Secretary General invited the two main participants on the guerrilla side and on the government side to shake hands with him. And I think there the parties understood that this was now serious and that they really were bound by what they had agreed to. And so you have these major milestones in the process, and, and one of which comes right at the end of 1991, just before the Secretary General Perez de Cuellar is about to leave office. It's the 31st of December, and the parties initial this, this preliminary agreement. And I'm curious about how you felt in that moment in terms of the stage of where you had brought the process. How did you feel on that day? I was deeply moved, close to tears, I have to admit, and at the signing ceremony proper, which occurred in Mexico City at the Chapultepec Castle, which had never been used for these purposes before, in front of 10 heads of state, they signed it. And I had a pen in my pocket. And I asked Butros Ghali, who was by then Secretary General, do me the honor of signing with my pen. And he did that. It was an extraordinary moment, which I will never forget, nor will I forget the speech of President Cristiani, where he was recognizing, in effect, the legitimacy of the uprising against the state of the FMLN. It was a rather extraordinary moment. So you must have felt this huge sense of professional satisfaction, not only for the agreement, but this sort of new agenda for peace, which is being crafted as a result to ensure that it lasts beyond the agreement itself. What are the other sort of main positive lessons that you draw from this mediation experience? And, and do you have any regrets as well, looking back? Well, let's do with a, a positive first. We had no script with which to face this negotiation. The UN had never mediated an internal conflict before. The normal pattern of events, the normal drill was that the first thing you looked for was a ceasefire, and then you could talk Turkey, as it were. But we realized during these negotiations that because of the dynamics between the parties, particularly in the battlefield, that because of that, they were wartime negotiations, wasn't necessarily a bad thing, because it put a certain pressure and urgency on the parties, and because it kept the attention of the international community focused on it. And the other thing is that it was essential to actually look at 
a series of problems that were off the normal beaten path for mediators, ideas that were not put forward by the parties, but that we, the UN team, identified as necessity, including the Truth Commission. Now, on the things that I would have done differently, there was a very tight deadline for the members of the Truth Commission to submit their report, which meant that the report was submitted while the same president who had presided over negotiations was still in power. Now, these negotiations were very difficult for the government of El Salvador, and particularly for the president. So I wonder whether it might not have been better to give the Truth Commission more time so that its report, which was high-impact report and came to conclusions which were largely unsavory for the government, perhaps it should have come under his successor. It would have been better because he reacted in an impulsive manner and within days almost rammed through the legislature a blanket amnesty. That was a severe setback to the unfolding of political life because if the government had been a little bit more contrite about this, it would have helped the healing process that the Truth Commission's report hoped would produce. I'd like to move on to your work on Cyprus and perhaps start by giving some background for our listeners who might not know the context. Violence between Greek and Turkish Cypriots flared in the years after independence and Greek Cypriot nationalists staged a coup in 1974. This led to the Turkish invasion that year, the displacement of about 200,000 people and the de facto partition of the island. And in the context of this unresolved conflict, you become special advisor to the UN Secretary General from late 1999 until April 2004. And it's often said that generals fight the last war. Is the same true of mediators? Um, I ask this imagining that you very quickly saw the differences between El Salvador and Cyprus. I think that the only thing that I repeated was the U-shaped table. Basically, that was it. One of the interesting things to realize is that even though not a shot had been fired at the dividing line between the Turkish-controlled north and the Greek-Cypriot-controlled south, the suspicion and the level of rancor on the two sides remained. We were working in a certain context. The opportunity for these negotiations had arisen because the European Union had decided on what eventually became a Big Bang enlargement, which included the Republic of Cyprus. But we had to race so as to pull this off before the enlargement occurred so that Cyprus could enter the European Union unified. I want to ask you a bit more about how these two principles in Cyprus, so President Claridis, president of Cyprus on, on the Greek side, if you will, and Mr. Denktash on the Turkish Cypriot side, 
and what they wanted from you as a mediator. In the case of Mr. Kledides, it was very clear that what he wanted is to negotiate with Denktash. In the case of Denktash, with hindsight, he probably never wanted an agreement. It's something he told me very early on. Mark my words, Mr. De Soto, the only relationship which the Greek Cypriots are willing to contemplate with the Turkish Cypriots is a relationship of domination. Uh, and this he had concluded after many years, even decades of talks, that the only way to ensure Turkish Cypriot security and preservation of its identity was in a separate state. One of the lessons from El Salvador is that you were very adept at working with the bigger power brokers behind the scenes. How did you apply that lesson to Cyprus, particularly in relation to the governments of Turkey and Greece? The negotiations were being followed very closely by many players. Greece took a relatively standoffish position. This is up to the Greek Cypriots. We will not substitute ourselves for them. In the case of Turkey and the Turkish Cypriots, the dynamic was somewhat different in the sense that, well, Turkey had a large military presence. They were the only state that recognized this new statelet that was created by Mr. Denktash, and they were guarantors of the constitutional arrangements in Cyprus, and therefore had a say in the outcome, as Greece did, as the UK did. They had to approve any reforms of the Constitution, for instance. So no negotiations could bear fruit unless there was that approval. So it was important to be in place with them. I want to ask about the evolution of your relationship with the Turkish government, and in particular, the elections in 2002, which saw the AK party make massive gains, led by the man who would be president, Mr. Erdogan. And you had a one-on-one meeting with Mr. Erdogan with only an interpreter present. Tell me about that meeting. Well, it was within days of the triumph of AK. I met with him, and this was actually quite extraordinary, and I'll never forget this moment. He told me through an interpreter, I want you to know that my overarching goal is to get Turkey into the European Union. Secondly, I understand that the situation in Cyprus is an obstacle to this goal. And thirdly, he said, I understand that you are in charge of solving this problem. I'd like you to tell me how to solve this problem. And to me, this was a sort of like an epiphanic moment. Unfortunately, this came very late in the game. By late 2002, there was going to be a European Council in Copenhagen at which they were going to formalize the invitation to the 10 countries that were to enter the process. And that whatever leverage I had was going to begin to hemorrhage And so you felt this kind of pressure of the timelines associated with this EU enlargement process. And so you and your team worked very hard and created this 
enormously detailed plan of a thousand pages, which you have to put to a referendum. And as I understand it, when you first started your work, it was the Greek Cypriots who were more in favor of a deal than the Turkish side. But now the the opposite might be true. And, and that uh, indeed you thought that the Greek Cypriots would reject the deal in a referendum. So why did you decide to go ahead with it nonetheless? We had concluded under Kofi Annan that these two leaders were not going to come to an agreement on the plan. So what we decided to do and what Kofi Annan put to the parties on a visit to Cyprus is said, what I want you to do is to stand aside and let the people decide in parallel referendums. Greek Cypriot side was a bit fearful. It seemed to me that things had not been properly explained to them. And when they saw these plans, several hundred pages in the high hundreds and 9,000 pages of annexes, they had a lot of questions. And you couldn't stop that train, even though the prognosis was not necessarily good. But it was good on the Turkish Cypriot side, because in disagreement with what had been Denktasha's position, they decided two to one that their security and their identity could be protected and preserved under this plan. The Greek Cypriots went in another direction, unfortunately. I'd like to move on to Israel-Palestine. You served as UN Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process and the Secretary General's Envoy to the Middle East Quartet, which is made up of the US, Russia, the EU and the UN, from May 2005 to May 2007. It's arguably the world's most complex conflict and certainly the most politically risky for the UN. But when you took on the role, it was a moment of opportunity. Tell us first about what was happening at the time. Well, on the Palestinian side, Yasser Arafat died in December of 2004. And very soon, his successor was elected as head of Fatah, as head of the Palestinian Authority, created by Oslo, and as head of the PLO. And uh, he very much wanted to resume talks. I say resume because Mahmoud Abbas, or Abu Mazen, as he is widely known, had always been a practitioner of back-channel negotiations. On the other side, the prime minister was Ariel Sharon, who was, let's say, less enthusiastic about having talks. And he said, let's have talks, but give me some quiet. Because it was a time when there were a lot of attacks and some particularly violent ones, among others by Hamas, which was created in 1988, in a sense with Israeli blessing at the time because they saw it as a way to weaken the PLO. But nevertheless, they had carried out a number of hideous terrorist attacks circumscribed to territory of Israel, which Hamas considered was really Palestinian territory. But Abu Mazen, in March of 2004, had called for and obtained, with help from Egypt, talks with all the Palestinian factions in Cairo. And in those talks, he 
laid out what was essentially his strategy, which was not to try to impose a cessation of violence on these various factions, including the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, but to negotiate with them. One of his goals, clearly, was to get Hamas to participate in what he wanted to do, the first item on his agenda, which was call elections for the, the Palestine Legislative Council, which was their legislature, in effect. Now, Hamas had not wanted to participate in elections earlier in the mid-90s for the PLC because they were an offshoot of Oslo, which they rejected wholesale at the time. But Hamas, this time, allowed itself to say, yes, we will accept a lull, as they called it, which is essentially an informal, unmonitored ceasefire, meaning they would stop attacks. And they accepted to participate in elections. And there was also another circumstance, which was that the two leaders until then of Hamas, namely Sheikh Yassin and his successor, who were killed by Israeli-targeted uh, rockets, had been speaking for some time about their willingness to create, at least on a provisional basis, a Palestinian state in the territory that had been allocated to the Arabs in the late 40s armistice ending the first Arab-Israeli war. This was a considerable concession because Hamas mm -hmm. considered basically that Israel was an interloper who had taken over land that rightfully belonged to the Palestinians. But the caveat there is that they were, by accepting a state in only that portion of the territory, they were implicitly accepting that there was a state on the other side, which they had to deal. And to my mind, this was just a step in the direction of what could have turned into a permanent agreement. So you had a number of these positive signals on the Palestinian side. And on the Israeli side, Ariel Sharon, the Israeli prime minister at the time, had decided to withdraw Israeli settlements from Gaza. How important a development was that? It was certainly important because the only context in which Israel had agreed to withdraw from occupied territory until then was in its agreement with Egypt, during which they returned every square centimeter that they had taken in the 1967 war from Egypt, and also with Jordan later on. So this acceptance was an important factor, and it registered with the international community. And uh, Sharon went to the UN General Assembly, and he found that a number of people who shunned him until then not only were willing to talk to him, but sought to talk to him. So he was basking in the glory of this withdrawal, which was celebrated by the international community. What were you thinking at that time? Because did you see these developments and think, ah, now is really the time for, for us and the UN to move things forward? Well, what caught my attention 
was a statement in response to a journalist's question, I believe while still in New York by Sharon, where he was asked about the participation of Hamas in the coming elections. And he said, we are against it and we will not cooperate with it. And so that year, as in previous years since the creation of the quartet in September, there was a meeting of the quartet that was scheduled. Kofi Annan, Condi Rice, uh, Sergei Lavrov, and the European representatives. But before that, this was preceded by a meeting of the envoys. So I met with my colleagues, and I sort of chaired the meeting, and what I said to them, listen, what we are in sight of, I think, is a moment that I described it as a plastic moment, a malleable moment, something that we could shape. And so I recapitulated to them how the context had changed on the Palestinian side, and particularly on the side of Hamas. Hamas showing that it could switch off the violence, the attacks against Israel, that it was participating in elections for a body that was an offshoot of the Oslo Accord, which they reviled until then. So they already had a, a foot within the Oslo framework, and that they were moving in the direction of accepting what they described as a provisional, but a lengthy provisional Palestinian state in the territories allocated to the Arabs at the armistice. And so I said, what we have is Hamas moving in the right direction. So it seems to me that the key item in the meeting of the quartet that is to take place is that. And what we need to do is essentially back Abu Mazen's strategy, which is to legislate the de-escalation by Hamas and promote the continuation of their movement. And with some surprise, I discovered that my colleagues from the US, Russia, and the European Union all agreed to this. And the following mm. day, the quartet met, and there was, in fact, a formal agreement. And what was quite extraordinary, I thought, was that when they had a press conference uh, and the Secretary General read the terms of the statement to the press that they had agreed on, which contained a reference to this. And when somebody from the press asked a question about it, instead of the Secretary General coming out and elaborate on it, the person who did the explaining was Condi Rice, the U.S. Secretary of State, in which she said, in effect, normally, in a democracy, political parties don't have militias. But what we see on the Palestinian side is clearly a movement toward democracy, of which the forthcoming elections are a part. And so let's let them advance toward a full democracy at their own pace. So she was the mm. one who defended this agreement. So you have this moment after the elections in January 2006, which Hamas won, which you describe as this plastic moment. And it's clear that you see it as this incredible opportunity and that others in, in the international community seemingly agree, including the, the likes of the US. 
but then things uh, become undone. Talk to me about the moment when you felt that consensus, that moment of opportunity begin to fall apart. Essentially what happened is that contrary to the predictions of Abu Mazen himself, he would win the elections. Hamas won the elections. In the meeting that took place of the quartet soon after the elections and the victory of Hamas, which won enough representatives in it to form a government by itself, and which, by the way, Hamas quickly moved to reach out to all others, including to Fatah, and says, we know we can form a government by ourselves, but we don't want to do that. We would like to have a Palestinian government that is truly representative. And so we invite you to present proposals of who could be part of the government that we will have to present when the time comes. So, in any case, what happened is that the reaction was, it certainly smacked as a move of the goalposts, that uh, the support for the strategy of Abu Mazen and the participation of Hamas, which was moving in the right direction, was not in consonance with the thinking, at least not among some members of the quartet. So a proposal was presented to the envoys in the meeting prior to that of the principals of the quartet, the secretary general and the foreign ministers and the EU high representative, that a proposal was presented to essentially withhold assistance to the Palestinians unless all members of the government that was to create, be created for the Palestinian Authority agreed to three notions, nonviolence, recognition of Israel, and a formal agreement to everything that had been agreed under Oslo and before and after Oslo by Israel and the Palestinians. A conditionality which made it very, very difficult. So I disagreed with that approach. The European Union and the U.S. were obviously the main donors to assistance to the Palestinians, which was crucial, by the way. Without that assistance, I mean, how do you pay for the salaries of doctors, nurses, and teachers in places like Gaza? So I resisted that, but ultimately uh, it was drafted in a way that didn't commit the UN, strictly speaking, but the UN became associated with it, if only by yeah. proximity. And I actually thought that the UN, from that point on, should take a long, hard look at its participation in the quartet. You say to the quartet, this is bad diplomacy. And you also didn't mince your words in your end of mission report. And I know you're a consummate professional and it wasn't leaked by you, but it is out there in the public domain. And in that report, you liken yourself to the Black Knight in Monty Python's Holy Grail film, who carries on fighting determinedly despite his limbs being lopped off by the enemy. Why did that image in particular come to mind? Well, the reason that that came to mind is that when I proposed to go to see the leadership of Hamas as the future 
leader of uh, the Palestinian Authority. I was told not to. This I found very disconcerting. I was frankly flummoxed by it. I said, you know, I'm your envoy to the authority. Why should anything change? I used to see Abu Mazen with some regularity when he was head of the Palestinian Authority and also members of his cabinet. But I have to say I spent the whole uh, of the year 2006 in repeated efforts to convince the Secretary General to let me meet with the Palestinian Authority, which I was only able to do once or twice for very brief exchanges with them. I, I also tried to, under his successor, under Kofi Annan's successor, Ban, to do this, and uh, when we first met, was rather encouraged by his reaction. But it became clear on his first visit, which took place within two months of his being Secretary General, that he was not heading in that direction at all, whereupon I yeah. uh, submitted my resignation. I want to ask you a final question, Alvaro, about the qualities that make for a successful mediator. You wrote a letter to a young mediator with some reflections on our field, which I'd encourage our listeners to read. And we've talked a lot today about the craft of mediation. But in that letter, you wrote, temperament trumps technique. How do you think your friends would describe your temperament, Alvaro? Well, the tricks of the trade, it doesn't take too long to learn them. I learned them at the Law of the Sea conference. I learned them working with my boss and mentor, Perez de Cuellar, also. So the important thing is to possess the willingness to listen very carefully, to have very acutely developed empathetic skills, the capacity to learn and listen and to persuade those that you are speaking to them that you are listening to them and that they are being taken seriously. If you don't have that sort of propension, then no tricks of the trade or techniques are going to make you a good mediator. Well, on that reflective note, we must leave it. Alvaro de Soto, thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And there we end this edition of the Mediator Studio. To get more episodes as they come out, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We always love to hear from you. So if you have views on anything you've heard, please get in touch via the listener survey in the show notes on our website. Or do drop me a message on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold and the producer is Chris Gunnis. Research for this episode was done by Noemi Blomer. Big thanks also to Li Buidong for her support. Hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, from Oslo, this is Adam Cooper saying goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.